confidence in the flesh or confidence in Christ. We'll walk through these seven verses together as we continue our study through this great short New Testament book, which was actually a letter, a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi. And so we start on the second half of the letter, chapter 3, today. Let's stop for just a moment again and ask the Lord to help us today. Father, we bow our heads and our hearts before you in these next few moments before we meditate on and study your word together. And in our heart of hearts, Lord, we just want to express to you, you are such a good God. You are so gracious and merciful and loving, kind, patient, long-suffering, gentle. We love you and praise you, Father, for your abounding mercy and grace towards us in the previous week, and we thank you for the grace and the health and the strength and the opportunity and the time to be able to assemble together, to be able to church together, assemble together as your people, the body of Christ adopted into the family of God, saved, redeemed, rescued, ransomed, transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Our hearts are full of gratitude and thanksgiving, Lord, for who you are, for all that you've done for us in Christ Jesus. And as we gather here, as we look to your word once again, Father, we, we ask that you would give us understanding and discernment, not only to understand what your word is saying, but also how does it specifically apply to our lives and in what ways, Lord, has there been maybe a, a, a subtle shift or a, a skewed way in which we think of gospel, in which we think of grace, that is, is, has discolored the gospel of Jesus Christ? And Father, for us to be able to see if, if we ourselves have not been thinking rightly, accurately, biblically about our own salvation or even our sanctification, our life after Jesus, in with Jesus. Then, Father, for us to be able to understand that and see that and correct that, Lord, we will need abundant grace because we, we normally do not see our own flawed thinking. We, we normally see the flawed thinking of others. And so we need your Spirit, Lord, to work, not only in that area specific to the text, but... Lord, there are a multitude of needs represented in the, 
and the people who are gathered, myself included, Lord, and, and you know what they are. There are needs of conviction and, and there are needs of encouragement. There are needs of enlightening of, uh, of the scripture. There are needs of uplifting of the soul. There are needs of direction in life and, and wisdom for living. Faith for moving forward. Faith for trusting in the promises of God and, and not being swallowed by the world and, and by the circumstances that we find ourselves in. There's, there's hundreds of needs represented. And you are sufficient, Father, for each and every one. There's not a single need represented among us in which you are not ultimately, completely, utterly sufficient. And so as we come, Father, to your word that is alive and active and, and powerful and as your spirit is alive within us, we, we just simply ask that you would come, that you would rest, that you would work among us, walk among us, speak to us, Father. And move us in our hearts and move us in our thinking and move us in our faith according to your perfect plan and will and pleasure. We bow before you, very needy, and we look to you, Father, as all-sufficient. May your will be done today, we ask in Christ's name, amen. Confidence in the flesh or confidence in Christ. Well, in chapter 3... Paul begins now addressing a new issue facing the church at Philippi. In chapter 2, he was dealing really with an internal issue, the necessity of unity for the cause of Christ, that the church, the congregation must, have a, a, must be of the same mind, must be of the same spirit, must have the, the same love. There must be unity for the sake of the gospel. Don't let anything disrupt the unity of the church because nothing silences the witness of the gospel more than division. Nothing makes ears dull to what the church has to say about salvation in Christ than the church having a reputation throughout the community of being divided and divisive, backbiting. And so the answer then to this potential disunity is humility. If all of the members of a congregation will look to Christ as our great example, find our strength in him, and, and pursue tremendous humility, counting others as more significant than ourselves, putting others ahead of ourselves, if we would each seek and pursue humility, then unity will prevail. In chapter 3, Paul turns from the internal issue of the need for unity to the external issue of false teaching. 
Just as the church will always need to keep a pulse on internal unity, it will also always need to be aware of false teaching that, that ebbs and flows, that arises and falls, that, that comes to popularity, that, that trends from time to time. Internal strife will, in fact, as Paul is warning, it, it will shrivel the advance of the gospel But a false gospel is a far greater danger. If a false gospel invades and infiltrates and and spreads within the life of the church, it will not merely lessen the impact of the gospel. It will eventually erase the gospel and replace it with another message that's not the gospel. The church of Jesus Christ, this church of Jesus Christ, must always be vigilant in striving for unity internally and in exposing and opposing a false gospel. Now, disunity is easy to spot. It's not, it's not hard to, to spot a congregation that internally is at odds A false gospel is far more cunning to realize. Disunity is often public knowledge. I mean, when two people, two people within the church or two factions within the church or two ideas within the church or whatever begin to oppose each other and and conflict and be in confrontation, that's pretty much, it becomes pretty much public knowledge fairly soon. In fact, we see in chapter 4, Paul just goes ahead and calls out the two ladies that are divided in this church. Everybody already knew these, these folks are at odds. Disunity is often public knowledge. A false gospel is often first privately held, secretly held. Even at times, unintentionally embraced. Sometimes we kind of fall into a false way of thinking about the saving grace of Jesus Christ or even the Christian life in Jesus Christ. We just kind of fall into it unintentionally because we're, we're, we're hearing a message that sounds right, that sounds pleasing, that, that, that seems to be accurate, that seems to be biblical, that seems to fit the way I feel, that seems to fit the way I've been thinking about things. It might be a new best-selling book. It might be a popular celebrity Bible teacher. It it might be a new undercurrent of of Christian social media post. And before you know it, a significant portion of the church, a growing percentage of the church, is quietly adopting this view of faith, this view of salvation, this view of the Christian life. That sounds biblical because it's cloaked in spiritual jargon. There's enough biblical language, there's enough Bible references attached to it that it must be biblical, therefore it must be right. It kind of feels right, it it connects with me, It, it must be accurate. But it's actually unbiblical. 
many things are portrayed as what Jesus would do when actually, that is, biblically, it's the opposite of what Jesus would do and who Jesus is. So our lack of being filled with the knowledge of the Scripture makes us even more susceptible to false ideas and false teaching. One of the common themes of the false gospel that you can really pick up on pretty quick is is false gospels tend to minimize sin and maximize self. There's not much talk about wrongdoing. There's a lot of talk about right doing. To downplay the need for transforming grace. That that we're not who we need to be or, or should be. And that only by the grace of God we can be. There's, there's a downplay of transforming grace and, and an uplifting of autonomy, of, of the sufficiency of self, of, of how we can improve, how we can be better, how we can do more. Is that birds outside? <laughs> they, are, they are singing praises to God or something. They, Oh, glad to have them, but all creation sings, right? They're still praising. One of them will start preaching here in a little bit. The particular form of false gospel that's seeking to infiltrate the church at Philippi was a teaching that circumcision is necessary for one to be made right with God. You won't be completely right with God, 100% right with God, a part of the people of God, until you begin to practice circumcision. Now that sounded right to the human ear because in this context, they're still very close to the the Old Testament. They're still very close to the, the Old Covenant. And the the gospel, the message of the gospel is still very new, very fresh. And when you think about it, circumcision was taught in the Old Testament. You can find a verse of scripture that says so. It's there in inspired writing. God commanded the Israelites from from Abraham, the the Abrahamic covenant on, God, God commanded circumcision. To identify his people, separate his people, separate the nation of Israel from all the nations around it. That this nation was in covenant with Almighty God. So it must be right. When you hear then somebody say, oh, you you, you have to believe in Christ. You have to acknowledge Christ as a Savior, as as the Messiah. You, You have to give him your all. And you have to be circumcised. And furthermore, and not only it must be right because, hey, we can, we can find some biblical background. We can attach some verses of Scripture. But furthermore, it's, it, it's even more enticing because it gives me a part to play in my salvation. There's something I have to do. There's something I contribute. 
There's something that I must be a part of. It's not just Jesus and Jesus only. It's Jesus plus my work, plus my obedience. And Paul goes to great lengths in chapter 3 to prove that Jesus plus anything equals a false gospel. If our assurance of salvation is grounded in anything other than Christ alone, both in our salvation and our sanctification, our confidence is tragically misplaced. We are grounding our assurance in the wrong place. And if you have the wrong focal point for your assurance of salvation, it will inevitably lead you to a false understanding of salvation, a false gospel. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The hymn writer put it this way, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. Writers of a new worship song put it this way, Christ is my firm foundation. Christ and Christ alone. So let's look how Paul begins to open this up for the church at Philippi and explain this, expose this false gospel. First of all, false confidence equals false faith. In verse 1, we learn that Paul has already warned them about this dangerous teaching previously. He says, I'm, I'm writing the same things to you, but, but it's okay. That doesn't bother me. And in fact, it's safe for you. You, you need to hear this again. It, it bears repeating. For some reason, Paul feels compelled to go back over this with them. Maybe, maybe this false teaching was growing in popularity. Maybe it was being, being whispered within the church itself. But, but for whatever reason, Paul says, you need a fresh warning. You need to hear this again. And the same is true for us. We, we need to hear these truths over and over again. We, we need to be exposed to the Bible. We need to hear sound teaching. We need to study. We need to memorize over and over again. It, it, we, 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 we constantly need to be exposed to the truth because we're constantly exposed to false teaching. And Paul has some choice descriptive words, doesn't he? When we think of Paul, we don't, we don't, you know, you don't usually think of this kind of character coming out in Paul. But those who promote and popularize this false gospel, he uses some alarming language because he's sounding an alarm. You can't accommodate or appease a false gospel. You, you can't candy coat it. You can't softly approach it. It, it needs to be exposed. It needs to be dismantled. It, it needs to be done away with. Because it will lead to your ruin. So first of all, 
Paul says, look out for the dogs. Now that, you know, he's not against Georgia or anything like that. Dogs, you know, in, in, in our day, you know, if you call somebody a dog, that, that might be kind of an uplifting, you know, kind of a cool thing. What's up, dog? You know, I mean, it, but in their day, dog is a derogatory term. You know, in our day, it'd be similar if you call somebody a cat, right? I'm just kidding. For all the cat lovers, just kidding. So this is really the kind of the cleanest bad word you can use we we do that as christians right we we the the cleanest bad word we can use to to really get at someone remember in matthew 7 6 jesus says in the sermon on the mount do not give the dogs what is holy and he's not talking about canines He's using an illustration. Do not throw your pearls before pigs. In other words, there comes a point when trying to reach someone who wants nothing to do with God becomes vain. That's that's fearful, isn't it? Paul is saying these, these people are coming in language cloaked in scripture they're coming saying they are for God and the things of God they're coming even with their Old Testament Bibles but they are not for God they are not with God and they're certainly not for the gospel he goes on to say, look out for the dogs, look out for the, the evil doers. So right here, he, he drives the point home. He makes it as clear as possible. It is an evil thing to distort the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's about as evil as evil can get. If you dilute the gospel with anything, what you have left is not the gospel. If you take salt and and if you take a glass of clean, fresh drinking water and you pour salt in it, you no longer have clean, fresh drinking water. You have something else because you've diluted it. So to tweak God's gospel, God's means of salvation through his son and only through his son by the work of his son is evil at its core. Paul says, look out for the evildoers. This is evil doing to say that for salvation, we need to, at least in this area of our lives, take our eyes off Christ. That's what it means. When you say Jesus plus something, you mean in that plus something. Now for this portion of your eternal salvation and hope and peace and reconciliation with God and to be justified in his sight and adopted into his family, take your eyes off Christ and look at this. And the Bible says that's evil. In other words, that's the work of the, that's the, work of the devil. That's Satan's work, is to take our eyes off Christ. 
And Paul then uses this language, those who mutilate the flesh. You know, he's referring to circumcision here. So he's using this kind of bombastic language. Not saying that it's an evil thing to be circumcised. It's an evil thing to be circumcised as to be made right with God. Those who mutilate the flesh. You you don't have to cut your flesh to be made right with God. Christ's flesh has already been torn for you. By the way, there's no reason to mutilate your flesh. No reason. God created you in his image and has all things good for you in Christ. Look to him. And the circumcision of the old covenant, again, was God's means to to identify his people from those to separate them, to make them distinct under in, in, in in a relationship with this one true God, distinct from those who worshiped other gods. But that's not the new covenant way. In the gospel, we are not one ethnic people distinct and separate from all nations. We are one people in Jesus in all nations. The people of God are in all nations, part of all nations, not distinct from all nations. That's the new covenant way. We are one people from all nations, tribes, tongues, and languages. So it's not an external fleshly act that separates us and makes us distinct. Paul says we are the true circumcision. The the Old Testament was a picture. It it was foreshadowing. The Old Covenant was a picture. It, It was foreshadowing what the fullness would be in the New Covenant. Our distinction, our separation from the world around us does not come from an external ceremonious act. We are the true circumcision, Paul says. And he defines it this way. We worship by the Spirit of God. It's what's happened internally that makes us God worshipers. The Spirit of God has done something on the inside of us, in our hearts, has given us a new heart, a a heart of repentance, a a heart of faith, a heart that loves the Lord, that that treasures Christ. The, The Spirit of God has made us alive in Christ. The Spirit of God has made us new and and therefore children of God. And, And that's why Jesus tells the woman at the well that the Father is seeking the true worshipers who worship the father in spirit and truth not by some kind of outward religious ceremony that builds up your credentials 
and merits your salvation, but an internal work of grace by the Spirit of God that makes you a different person, and therefore by the Spirit, through the Spirit, you now worship God. And after that internal work of grace that that brings us new birth, then the external comes. Then the transformation begins. Then the overflow of the inside changes the outside. And that new life begins to appear. What Paul says here, we glory in Christ Jesus. That's what separates us from everybody else in the world. We glory in Christ Jesus. We don't glory in self. We don't glory in wealth. We don't glory in health. We don't glory in achievement and accolade and empire and other people. We glory in Christ Jesus. We live for him. We boast in him. We rely on him. And therefore, Paul says, we put no confidence in the flesh. True believers realize we don't have what it takes to be right with God. We can't do anything on our own to be made right with God. Because what's messed up about us is not our external appearance or what others think us to be. What's messed up about us is down deep in the core of our very being of who we are. It's called sin and it's a disease that captures every bit of our being. And there's no kind of step or process or 12-step or hoops to jump through or or religious external ceremony that we can go through that's going to cleanse the inside. There's nothing we can do. Therefore, we put no confidence in the flesh. Our flesh contributes nothing to our salvation except our need for it. So we don't put any confidence in the flesh. And maybe that's where we need just to put the brakes on and ask the Spirit of God to really help us see if not intentionally, but unintentionally, we've stored up some confidence in the flesh. We're banking on the flesh and not 100% on Christ. In our day, we're not in danger of a false gospel based on circumcision. There is... The old the, the religious practice among Judaism, but we practice circumcision for health reasons. But we do have our own brand of false gospels, right? We do have our own brand of confidence in the flesh. 
We do have those cunning, convincing ideas, those subtle ways of thinking and relying that we might not even express. But in the back of our mind and and in our heart of hearts, it's what we're leaning on. Ideas that distort the gospel message that Christ is utterly and completely sufficient. Maybe it's church attendance. Maybe it's moral living. Maybe it's legalistic outward conformity. In other words, this is the way I express my faith and you must do likewise. Or you're not right with God like I am. These are the things I don't do, and these are the things I do. And if you don't follow my recipe for godliness, you're not right with God. Doing good deeds, doing good causes. If someone asks us, how do you know that you're right with God? How do you know that you are accepted in in God's sight? How do you know that you will be welcomed into his kingdom when you breathe your last? And, And we answer with anything other than who Jesus is and what he has done for us. That is a false gospel. It may be a good thing. Listen, circumcision is not a bad thing. Thing. But when it becomes part of my understanding of how I'm made right with God, it becomes an evil thing. Church attendance is not a bad thing unless it's how you plan to be right with God. Moral living is not a bad thing unless that's what you're banking on. I've been a good person. I've done good things. I've given money. I've served. I've done this. I've done that. I haven't done these things. I'm better than him. I'm better than her. At least I don't do that. At least I haven't done that. By the way, here's, here's what maybe, maybe most of us need to hear today. So it might be the most important thing thing that I I say today for us the, the same way we come to God is the same way we live for God by grace in our resurrected Savior so we fall prey to this teaching that says once you come to Jesus yeah that's all by grace but then it's up to you to live for him boy you gotta you gotta pull yourself up by your bootstraps you gotta buckle in you gotta work hard you gotta do more you gotta strive you gotta you you've got to do this you've got to be perfect you've got to work on it you've got to do without understanding that the same power that saves us is the same power that sanctifies us And that is the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Maybe the reason we can't see victory over our fears. Maybe the reason we can't get past ourselves. Maybe the reason why we can't, we can't see a, 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 a dismantling over that sin that grips us and so easily persuades us is because we're fighting all that stuff in the flesh. We've got confidence in the flesh to fight the flesh and it's not going to work. We keep doing the same things, the definition of insanity, right? 
So our answer is just try harder. And we keep failing and we keep being defeated and we keep being run over. Because we're going to ourself, we're going to our strengths, we're going to the latest book, we're going to a bullet point, we're going to look at others, what others are doing, look what he posted, look what he's doing, look what he says. And it's all the self-help and it's all the guru and it's all the worldly thinking about solving worldly issues. And it's not the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says, for salvation and sanctification, we glory in Christ Jesus. And we put no confidence in the flesh. So that leads us to the second point. Zero confidence in me. In verse 4, Paul says... If confidence in the flesh, in who I am and what I can do is the answer, then I've got a better record than any of you. And he lists seven spiritual qualifications. If we could do anything to be right with God, Paul says, I've done it. I've been there, done that. Circumcised, yes, I did the old covenant thing, check. Israelites, I am a biological child of Abraham, check. Tribe of Benjamin, I can trace my genealogy all the way back to the 12 tribes, check. Hebrew of Hebrews, I'm Jewish to the core, check. The law, I was a top practitioner, check. Zeal, I persecuted the church, this new religious idea, these fanatics about this Jesus character, check. Righteousness by the law, if you can do it in your own strength, I'm absolutely blameless, Check if anyone could be right with God by who he is and what he's done, Paul would be closer to God than anyone. And yet, with all of his spiritual credentials, Paul was as far from God as one could get. Understand that. He had all the spiritual qualifications as far away from God as you can get. So far that he approved the slaying of God's people. That's as far from God as you can get. How about you? What are your spiritual credentials? Have you got any? Is it your feelings? How you felt one day or how you feel when you think? Is it your experience, a a religious experience that you had? Is it your personality? Is it what others think of you, what others tell you? Or is it Jesus? That's why Paul is so passionate about dismantling false Gospels. He knows from experience the flesh can't save you. You'll never be good enough. You'll never do enough good things. 
no matter who you are or what you do, you can't erase your record of sin. It stands against you. Our record of sin stands against us. It condemns us. Listen, good, moral, southern, hospitality, good old boy, people go to hell every single day. With a lot of confidence in the flesh. There is only one who is able to save and counsel the record of debt that stands against us. Therefore, last point, thank you for hanging with me. All confidence in Christ. All confidence in Christ. So Paul said, whatever gain I had, Paul says, I made a list. Whatever gain I had... It was a good list. It was a long list. But even when I stacked all of my qualifications together, my list did not move me one inch closer to God. The truth is, the longer our list of spiritual credentials grow, the further we are moved away from God. And therein lies the cruel deception. I know it's getting hot in here, but this is the point of the sermon that you really need to listen. So fight that tiredness that's coming on you because you're getting really warm. Push that back to the corner. Stay with me for five more minutes. It may be the difference in all, all your life and all eternity. And next Sunday, I'm going to crank that AC up. So bring a blanket if you're cold natured. Therein lies the cruel deception. The more right we think we are by what we do, the more wrong we become. So Paul says, I counted everything on my list as loss. I tore up my list. I had a big, long list of spiritual qualifications. I tore it up because it means nothing. It profited me nothing. It made me stand tall in front of everybody else, but it made me stand far from God. I tore up my list and I clung to Christ for the sake of Christ. Whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. I put no confidence in anything I had done. I put all my confidence in what he had done on my behalf. And for Paul and anyone else who does the same, it made all the difference in the world. It made all the difference in him. So let me ask you one more time this morning before we sing. Do you have a list? Or do you have Christ? Do you really plan to stand before God and present your spiritual qualifications? Lord, we did all these great works in your name. Lord, we prophesied in your name. Lord, we cast out demons in your name. Lord, I, I attended this church. I was baptized here. I served here. I was on this committee. I never did this. I never did that. Lord, I was a good man. Lord, I went to church. Or will you say, nothing in my hands I bring Simply 
to the cross, I cling. Let's pray. Father in heaven, be with us in these next few moments. Speak as only you can speak in our hearts. Reveal what only you can reveal. If we are truly relying on anything other than Christ, anything that has to do with our record, Lord, would you by the Spirit of God totally dismantle that false prop so much so that this day right here, right now, we humbly yet joyfully come to Christ and embrace him as our only true treasure of life and salvation. And then, Father, those of us who are in Christ and and somewhere along the way we've let this idea creep in that that somehow my strength and my, my work and my striving and, and, and my record and, and my checkbox without relying on the grace of God to work in us what needs to be worked out of us. So, Father, in these next few moments as we sing this song of response, do your work in our heart and help us to be open, receptive, moldable, and to move and take those steps that you've called us to. We ask all in Christ's name, amen.